to give you 14 reasons why you should believe that the empty tomb is a real historical event. That Jesus, he not only died under cruci being crucified under Pontius Pilate, but that uh, he was buried and then three days later that tomb was found empty by eyewitnesses. I think you should believe this is historical. I'll give you 14 uh, lines of evidence or reasons why. And then at the end, I will give you the most common objection I've found to the empty tomb. The, the biggest reason that I see why people like come against and say, nope, that didn't happen. That's not historical. It just couldn't be the case. All right. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt. Uh, this is your host, Jordan. With me always is Jared. Uh, today, in honor of Easter, we're bringing you another episode on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This one specifically is on a video that was recommended to us by Kendall Painter. He showed us this um, video of Mike Winger's A Bunch of Reasons That the empty tomb is historical. It's about an hour-long YouTube video, and he wanted us to um, address the points that Mike Winger brings up. So that's what we're doing. Yep. And normally, you know, as we said in the past, we try to alternate between religious and and you know secular topics. But we also said that if you guys wanted us to cover something and you post it on Facebook, we would do it. And so we're doing it. Yep. Uh. So for those who don't know, Mike Winger is an apologist. Um, he has a pretty popular YouTube channel. And uh, basically, he, this was a live stream where he was just rattling off different points. He says it's 14, but two of them he forgot and one of them is repeated. So it's like 11 or 12. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was going off the cuff, so yeah. I don't win too hard. Um, but anyway, it's it's... What he's trying to argue is that the empty tomb is historical. And by the empty tomb, what a Christian apologist means is that uh, Jesus was crucified. He was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. And then usually three days or some period of time later, the tomb no longer had a body in it. And that is a historical claim. Now, obviously, they then take the established fact, quote unquote, that the tomb was empty to show that the resurrection is true. But technically, the resurrection is not part of the empty tomb. Right. Well, they say that the only real explanation for the tomb being empty is that he rose from the dead. Right. right. The only one. No That's possible it. alternative. So uh, it's going to be a long one. The um, YouTube video is an hour and 15 minutes. We're going to try not to take that long refuting his points or addressing his points. Um, but we're just going to hit every point in order so you can follow along with the video if you want. So starting at top with point one. Okay, so the first reason, number one, is uh, a term that historians call multiple attestation. That is, there's multiple sources attesting to the truthfulness of a specific thing. So what we have with the uh, empty tomb of Jesus is we have it actually recorded in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the sermon sermons in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have these early church sermons, and they predate the book of Acts. They're, they're, now, some people would think that the book of Acts was wholesale made up on the spot. That is, I, th I think that's a whole different debate. Well, We've got multiple attestation. So, Jordan, what, is it, what does attestation mean? <laughs> so... The Oxford Dictionary. No. <laughs> so uh, 
multiple att- attestation is just saying that multiple independent sources attest to a thing. So if you've got uh, any account of anything, doesn't have to be in the Bible. If someone says that, I don't know, they had a car accident and then someone else who was also there but doesn't know the first person says, yeah, there was a car accident. Now you've got two independent sources. It's multiply attested. Yeah. And so if you have independent sources, it's more the information goes to some time before both of them. And it's more likely to be true or to be more reliable. Yeah. And so with the with the empty tomb, if he's saying we have multiple sources, um, how many does he claim that we have? So he claims that he has six independent sources. Those sources are Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, uh, Acts, and then pre-Acts oral traditions that are in Acts. So Acts gets two credits. At least that's what we're gathering from. We listened to it like four times and we could only pick out five, but. Yeah, that's that's our best guess when he says six. So a couple problems with this right off the bat. Um, There's, well, I mean, talking about problems, the synoptic problem. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we've mentioned this uh, elsewhere in the podcast, so I won't go ton uh, uh, super into detail, but basically Mark, Matthew, and Luke are called the synoptics as in seen together because uh, Mark wrote his first and Matthew and Luke shamelessly ripped off everything he did. Yeah, like 90 plus percent. Yeah. So th- there's both Matthew and Luke, though they don't appear to be aware of each other, are definitely aware of Mark and use him all the time. Right. So, so that would be one source. Right. Winger attempts to say that they're independent because though they use each other all the time in the empty tomb narrative itself, um, there's not a lot of verbatim agreement, which uh, that's often how they tell that one source was aware of another was verbatim agreement. So I see what he's saying, but given the fact that Matthew and Luke definitely knew about Mark, I don't know how they could be independent sources. Yeah. Um, um, and then, and then John, uh, we can grant him that. I mean, John, yeah. it's pretty apparent that John did not know of Mark or Matthew or Luke when he was writing. Um, so we have two independent sources yeah. so far. Two, so the two gospels, Mark and, or the synoptics and John Acts was written by the author of Luke. It appears. Right. Um, in fact, they're often called together Luke Acts. Uh, so I don't know how the author of Luke could be well aware of Mark when he's writing Luke, but then not aware when he's writing Acts. Right. And then even so the the semitisms that he's talking about are are basically these sermons and Acts where it seems like the language is a little bit different than the language that Luke normally writes in. And so he's saying that this that accounts for them being independent sources because they must have come from some other oral tradition. Uh, but it seems we I mean we know that the gospels come from an oral tradition, all of right. them. Like they, this, they may have drawn off of written sources before, i.e., Q, but they certainly had a shared oral tradition they were drawing from. Um, so it's hard to say whether the oral tradition that Luke is using in Acts is a different oral tradition than what Mark would have had access to or whatever. I don't know. So two, maybe two and a half sources. Right. And it's interesting that these sources are all um, biblical. 
Yeah. They're all. There's no extra da, 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 biblical da, 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 sources. Da. Yeah. <laughs> or the Bible tells me so. Um, um, so that's multiple attestation. I think it's probably not as strongly multiply attested as he says, but it is technically multiply attested. And the second reason is early attestation or evidence that the stories didn't aren't just um, in lots of sources, but they go back to early sources. And this is ideal. This is exactly what the historian wants as they're looking at history. So it's point two is early attestation. Um, now, ideally, what you'd want as a historian is you'd want multiple people talking about an event soon after it happened. That would yeah. if you could just make up a source, that's what you'd want. And here he's talking about two things. One, that the Gospels have no sign of legendary development. So they were early. Um, and then he talks about the Corinthian Creed, um, which is in one of Paul's letters. So right. first, no signs of legendary development. Bull. <laughs> I'm honestly not sure how you could get there. Now, what, what he does is he talks about um, he, he shows like the Gnostic Gospels, how there was a ton right. more. He just but, the, he moves yeah. the goalpost. Like. Absolutely. The Gnostic Gospels have a ton more legendary development. They are also a century later. Right. So what you have is you look at if you just laid out the Gospels chronologically, Mark has in Mark, Jesus doesn't go around claiming he's God. He doesn't do many miracles. He constantly is silencing people. In Matthew and Luke, he's doing more miracles. He's more open about it. In John, he's not even human anymore. Now he's God, and he's doing so many miracles, we can't even write them all down, bro. And then Gnostic <laughs> Gospels, crosses are walking around. Like, it, and it's a clear, yeah, yeah, it's a clear trajectory. So there's yeah. certainly legendary development. Um, uh, yeah, so that point is... Yeah, so that's gone. Um, now, the Corinthian Creed, he's talking about 1 Corinthians 15, Okay, so if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 15 verses 3, 3 to 5. Uh, in this, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's not writing this in order to convince anyone that Jesus rose from the dead. Everyone he's talking to has already been convinced. Um, but he's citing a uh, what many scholars believe is a creed that was around before he is writing this down because he said he received it. There's a lot of reasons why they think it's pre-Pauline. If you're interested, you can go look that up, but we'll grant that it, it's from before Paul. And the creed itself is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. And that's like a tightly bound poem. And so that's what he's saying with early. Now, as to how early he says within what? like three years or something like that? Seven, maybe? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's anywhere three to five years. I mean, depends on how conservative you want to get, but within right. 10 years, definitely. Right. I mean, certainly Paul's writing in the 50s. It probably existed a good time before that. If yep. it was 10 years, that'd be 40. So somewhere between four to 10 years, something like that, pretty yep. early. Um, so... That one source that Jesus was buried and rose from the dead shows that Christians believe that Jesus was buried and rose from the dead very early. Yeah. However, you might notice that it doesn't say that Jesus was buried in a tomb. And it, it doesn't mention anything about Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, uh, well, 
We'll save that part for later because point nine is on Joseph Arimathea. But remember this creed because it's going to come up. <laughs> but the creed doesn't say anything about a tomb. So he could have been buried in any fashion. And this wouldn't necessarily. Now, just the, the fact that it doesn't say he was buried in a tomb doesn't mean he wasn't. Right. But this creed itself, all it shows is that Christians believed that he had rose from the dead, which I think is pretty obvious. Point three slash four, because he kind of combines these by accident. Okay, that's number three. We have so we have one multiply attested to early attestation within five years. We also have enemy attestation. He's is a uh, enemy attestation. So basically, things that aren't Bible, um, right? People, yeah, yeah. Anything that is not a Christian source. Yeah. Enemy um, doesn't necessarily mean like. The Nazis and you know the right. Russians during World War II. Someone who would not be sympathetic to the cause, right? So, um, for instance, if you're looking at another extremely well attested event, uh, Jesus or no, Jesus's conquest, Jesus didn't conquer anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, depends on how you view conquering. I mean, <laughs> that's true. He conquered my heart. Uh, but Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Um, there's a we have Caesar's own testimony, but we also have testimony from other people who are not Caesar right. at the time. So that would be an enemy attestation. But the thing with this enemy attestation for the empty tomb, it, all it is saying is that Christians are believing this to have happened. Right. It's basically like you have people who are writing about the Christians and saying that this is what the Christians believe. Right. So there are, he quotes several sources of like Roman governors who were questioning Christians and wrote about the things that the Christians said they believed. In Matthew, there's a, a part where they talk about people saying that the body was stolen and it appears that um, basically they, you wouldn't put that in Matthew unless you were arguing against people saying that the body was stolen. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that shows that enemies were saying that the body was stolen, which shows that the, the tomb was historical. That's kind of a leap. Um, if you think about the position of the Christians in the first century, they were a very tiny, unimportant minority. And if there's one thing we know about tiny minorities, they are ultra sensitive about anything said about them. Yes. If you don't believe that, go look at some flat earthers. Those guys spend so much time talking about um, uh, people who, who refute their positions. And this is going to be kind of a common theme, but he says, because people were saying that the body was stolen from the tomb, that means they weren't refuting that the tomb was there at all. Therefore, they knew that the tomb was empty. Therefore, right. it's an enemy saying there was an empty tomb. But that's not really what it means. First of all, Matthew at that point is 40 years after the fact. So from 30 to 70 or 80, yeah. 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. So at that point, even if there was a tomb, there's a good chance nobody knew where it was. But secondly, imagine you were just some random Roman and this nosy Christian is like banging on your door trying to get you to talk about Jesus just like now. And they're like, but the tomb was empty. 
and you're like, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe you guys stole the body. Leave me alone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wait, we didn't steal the body. Like, yeah. yeah. So it it doesn't seem like a very persuasive point. He he tries to to walk down a path where if they're saying that the body was stolen, they must be saying that because they knew that the tomb was empty. Therefore, it's an enemy attesting to the tomb. We don't have an enemy attesting to it at all. He's inferring that an enemy was attesting to it by Matthew saying something that he infers is against an enemy. It's very complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. It, it doesn't doesn't hold water. Bottom line, we don't have any writings of someone in the first century who is not a Christian who would have known about the tomb and then said it was empty. Yeah. Full stop. Not one. So, point so five. Point five. No competing tradition. Five. Number five is easy. Um, let's look at a list of all the competing traditions. All the, all the sources we have from history that say that Jesus wasn't buried and that the, or, or that he was buried and the tomb was still, was, was still occupied. Um, there are none. That's number five. There's no competing traditions. There's plenty of people wanting to refute Christianity at this stage, trying to refute it, arguing about it. None of them challenge the empty tomb. I think that's pretty significant. He says that there were plenty of people trying to refute Christianity. And that's all he says. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so all we're going to say is nope. <laughs> citation, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, citation, please. They're just... Christianity was not that important in the first century. Yeah. Um, all of the people, all the writings we're going to talk about, Celsus, those were all second century sources. Yeah. So, point six, the testimony of the women's. Number six, the testimony of women. And we're going to get in detail on this because this has been challenged a lot. And in the atheist community, um, if you're part of this atheist community that, that you know, you follow these things. You already you already are loading in your head why the testimony of women doesn't matter. But let me let me answer those objections and let me give you some specifics today. Now I'd like to start off by saying that this is probably his strongest evidence, if if we're gonna call it evidence. Um, right. I, yeah, I think this is definitely the strongest point he makes through this whole video. Now the, uh, we already covered this in our last episode. Mm -hmm. So if you want a deeper dive into this, you should probably go check that out if you haven't already. But Right. Uh, briefly, he says that women weren't viewed as reliable, um, and therefore the fact that they were the first ones to witness Jesus shows that that point would have been embarrassing. Because yeah. if you were just making up the story, you wouldn't have a bunch of women being there. Um so he talks there about are many, the, uh, he talks about Celsus, like yeah. So there there are many reasons why the gospel authors may have been fine with women being there. I do have to say though, he mentioned Celsus, who is a person who's writing against the, the Christians in the second century, right? Yeah, at the end of the second century, he was writing around right. one seventy to one eighty. Yeah. So Celsus does bring up the fact that women were witnesses to the resurrection as a point against Christianity, right. which shows that at least some people in the ancient world viewed that as a flaw there. So while it's true that Celsus does show that does that the, the testimony of Celsus undergirds Mike's point a little bit here. Um, and like I said, I think it's the strongest point. There are reasons why the gospel writers might have included women, even if they weren't historical for all those reasons, you can see the previous podcast. I don't think it's persuasive in and of itself. Basically literary reasons are more plausible 
then yeah so then that someone got up from the dead yeah all right point seven there's another brief one i'll hear number seven i'll give you Number seven is that uh, the Jewish practice of noting the gravesite of spiritual leaders. This is something Mike Lycona puts in his book, um, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, oh, a historiographical approach, which is a really interesting book, and it's very hard to read. It's very long, and you have to be committed if you want to read through it. I'm just being real with you. Uh, but I have read through it, and I found it to be very rewarding, um, very interesting, and uh, something worth thinking about. So in his book, he talks about how there's this actual Jewish practice at the time where you would note the burial site of a spiritual leader. And Jesus was a well-known spiritual leader. He had a large following, although, yes, it was very controversial at the time. But of course, it makes sense. It's just rational to say that they would note the site of his burial and not be clueless about what happened to his body. Jewish practices uh, of noting the grave sites of spiritual leaders. So basically... Jesus was a spiritual leader and Jewish people uh, always noted the gravesites of spiritual leaders. Therefore, everyone would have known where Jesus was buried. Uh, And for evidence of that, he shows exactly where John the Baptist was buried. I'm just kidding. Of course he doesn't because nobody knows. (laughs) He also says that Jesus was well known and had a large following, but he doesn't provide any citation or anything to back that up so we're just gonna say nope yeah citation please it's actually a a contested point in scholarship just how well known and just how large jesus's following was during his ministry and after his death yeah so no evidence for that uh point eight number eight eighth piece of evidence that points towards the empty tomb being historically true That is, this story came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the worst possible location to make up stories about Jerusalem. The story came from Jerusalem, where the crucifixion happened, and was believed in Jerusalem Jerusalem and spread in Jerusalem. But did it? Right, question mark. So did it come from Jerusalem? Yeah, I mean, or or somewhere in Judea. The Ephesus of the story came from Jerusalem. Right. Like the followers of Jesus, the very first ones who believed it and the events themselves. Jerusalem. Sure. Right. Okay. Uh, but did it spread in Jerusalem? No. Not not very well, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's why you have Paul and the rest of the apostles like going out because initially in their first missions, they try to convert everybody within the land of Judea and nobody was listening or paying attention that they're like, well, screw you guys. These Gentiles will listen to us. Let's go to them. It's like, mm. yeah, the, the church really struggled in the first century Judea. Um, for there's not a ton of data on the makeup of the church, Gentile versus Jew. Certainly as you go through history, it becomes more and more Gentile yeah. over time. Um, as to how fast it happened in the first century, there's not a ton of information. One thing I could find, you can look at um, how many Jews became Christians in the first century, question mark. The failure of the Christian mission to the Jews, which was written in 2009 by David Sim um, for the Australian Catholic University. And basically he argues in there that uh, the Jews weren't very receptive to the message of Christianity. And the number he gives was by the end of the first century, the Christian church was 
So like a thousand. Ninety-five percent Gentile. Yeah, ninety-five percent. Um, that's that's a lot. Yeah. So now take it with a grain of salt. There's not a ton of scholarship on there, but if you just look at where the churches are, you do have a church in. Jerusalem, there's a letter to the Hebrews, but most of the churches are in Corinth, they're in Rome, they're throughout the Roman world, and most yeah. of those people would be Gentile. Yeah. Uh, Paul, when he refers to his um, churches, he refers to them as Gentiles. Um, he, he makes a, a distinction between the members of his church and the people who are Jewish in the church. Um, a lot of the names are Gentile names. It's pretty clear that Paul saw himself as the, the prophet to the Gentiles. And he was by far and away the most popular. Well, Christianity was a, a Gentile religion. I mean, right. Uh, certainly by the end of the first century. Yeah. So it, so bottom line, it, it wasn't, it may have come from Jerusalem, but it was a hard sell there. Well, and so I think it's important. The reason he says that the story came from Jerusalem and was believed in Jerusalem was to back up like, well, they would have known if there was an empty tomb or not. Like that's mm-hmm. his whole point of this this line of reasoning. Um, yeah, that basically anyone who heard it would have gone and checked the tomb yeah, um, to make sure it was empty for themselves. Which kind of leads us into our next point. Which is point nine, Joseph of Arimathea. Number nine. Number nine, Joseph of Arimathea seems historical. So I'm going to give you several reasons why he's historical. This one is problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, he says, Mike Winger says, that Joseph of Arimathea, hi, him stepping forward to bury Jesus would be embarrassing because Joseph was a well-respected member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the Jews. He was a responsible member of the community and someone who is ostensibly an enemy of Jesus and then he's showing himself to secretly be a follower of Jesus. And that would be embarrassing because there's no reason the Christians would make that up. Really? <laughs> no reason at all. Can't imagine any reason why they might want to make up a story about someone who is a former enemy and respected member of the community believing Jesus. Man, I can't think of any reason why that would why you'd want to make that story up. It doesn't end any lend any credibility to your story whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I think this, and I don't want to commute. um, I I don't want to put (laughs) words in Mike's mouth and I don't want to assume what's going on in his head. Mm -hmm. So the best I can say is this shows a crippling lack of Imagination. imagination. Yeah. If you cannot comprehend any reason at all why someone would want to make this up, I don't even know what to say to you, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even, but, even... <laughs> it's just so blatantly obvious why you would want to yeah. make that up. But okay, leaving that aside. So, but the his big thing here is like we were saying before is like. People could have went and talked to Joe, man. They could have went and said, "Hey, Joseph, where's the tomb, man? They're saying yeah. it, they're saying you didn't even have a tomb. Where is it?" It's right. Like... And so the fact that they mentioned Joseph Arimathea, who is a well-known member of the community, he, the people would have just gone and talked to Joe. I mean, first of all, would they though? 
because we don't even know that he was even alive by the time the Gospels are written. Because remember, Joseph of Arimathea is never mentioned before the Gospels. Right. So by that point, it's 30 years later. Someone who's a a member of the Sanhedrin is going to be old to begin with. There's a good chance he's not even freaking alive anymore to ask if he ever existed at all. And even if he did... Even if Joseph of Arimathea existed, he was a real person, was around when the Gospels were written, this is not modern day when as soon as a book is written, it's immediately in bookstores everywhere. Yeah. You know, it, it took decades for that stuff to spread. So it, there was no reason like Mark's written in 70 that Joseph of Arimathea is going to even be aware for another 10 or 20 or 30 years if he's ever aware. And (laughs) let's say that Mark wrote his gospel, (laughs) Joseph Arimathea is in it, and he takes it upon himself to hand deliver a copy to Joe's door. (laughs) Joe could have been yelling at the top of his lungs all day, every day about how bullshit the story was. He didn't know who the hell this Jesus guy was. And he had, he's definitely not in his freaking tomb and nobody would know. Yeah, exactly. How would we know? How would, how would a a Christian in Rome have any idea what some guy in Jerusalem is yelling about? (laughs) He's down there refuting this left and right every day, but it's like, (laughs) it just goes on. And if you don't think that can happen, look at the rumors that happen now about people who are alive. Like there are rumors where celebrities die. Um, and they they spread like wildfire. Now we can check the source just by picking up our phone. If if you want to look at uh, <clears throat> religious um, stories spreading when people are refuting them, look at the the Rastafarians. They their their Messiah literally came to them and said, "Dude, I'm not the Messiah. Stop worshiping me." And they're like, "He's the Messiah." <laughs> <laughs> It was like it was like a life of Brian yeah. in there, you know. Oh, so. so it it there's plenty of reason why they would have made up Joseph of Arimathea, even if he was alive at the time of the burial. There's no saying he was alive to refute anything by the time Mark came around, and we don't have any of his writings. So even if he was refuting it left and right, that there's no indication that that would have mattered. Yeah, and. Arimathea isn't even a place. I mean, they're trying to say it's this other place by a name that has the same couple of the same letters. But I mean, why wouldn't you just call it the actual place? So now on that Corinthian creed, because this ties into Joseph, Mm -hmm. um, the creed I told you to remember, mark your Bibles. This is not damning, but it's part of the (laughs) cumulative case. Um, (laughs) This is just a, a, a small piece of evidence that I think nudges in the in the direction of Joseph not being known um, early in the Christian church. Right. So remember what that creed was. It's two paragraphs of three sentences each, and each the f- sentence in each paragraph corresponds to the other. So the first sentence in the first paragraph corresponds to the first sentence in the second. So the whole thing is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. So Christ died for our sins and he was raised. There's your pairing in accordance with the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures. There's a pairing 
The third one, that he was buried in the first paragraph. The second paragraph says, and that he appeared to Cephas. So the author goes to great lengths. And it probably wasn't Paul. Um, Paul adds some commentary afterwards. Um, and it, So whoever wrote this poem went to great lengths to make it a tightly wound formulism with, you know, parallels between right. the two parts. Um, if in, in the third sentence of the second part, he says that he appeared and then he says he appeared to Cephas, gives a name. If they had known a name of someone who buried Jesus, it would have been very easy to make it even more paralleled and even more tightly bound by putting a name in. Yeah. So saying that he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea and that he appeared to Cephas. Yeah. It would have enhanced the poetry of the thing. So that's a, a tiny nudge away. Maybe he didn't put it in there because he didn't know of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I don't think that's conclusive. Maybe he didn't put it in there because he just didn't feel like putting it in there. Or maybe this guy who wrote it didn't know of Joseph, but other guys did. Yeah. Or any other number of reasons. So it's certainly not conclusive, but one more brick in the wall. So where were we? We were talking about uh, the empty tomb. And speak <laughs> speaking of the empty tomb, point Let's talk 10. about the tomb. <laughs> Description of the tomb. Uh, number 10, the 10th piece of evidence, the description of the tomb that we read about in the Bible, it shows signs of historicity. What do I mean? I mean, if it had been written later, if it had been invented at a later time in a different place, it wouldn't be written the way it is. So this is his evidence that there was an empty tomb was that people described tombs. So... So there, there you go. There you go. People knew what tombs looked like and how they worked. And so that makes it historical that the tomb was empty. Right. So he says that the tomb that is described in the Gospels is similar to historical tombs we have found, where mm -hmm. basically you had a bench where the body was laid and then it rotted for a while. And then someone went in with a super gross job of collecting up the rotted bones and putting them in an ossuary to, to clear room for the next body. Um, and that's how tombs were at the time. Yeah. And that's the tomb that shows in the Gospels. Therefore, the person writing it knew what tombs were shaped like. Awesome. That, all that tells us is that the person writing it knew what tombs looked like in that area. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't tell us that the tomb was empty. Right. Uh, it's... Anyway, and this also goes to the women thing. Any storyteller will tell you that the thing that sells your story are the little details. Sometimes the embarrassing details. Yeah. So if I'm going to make up a story about a guy being buried in a tomb and I know what tombs look like, I'm going to talk about the tomb that he would be buried in. Just like if I was going to make up a story about a head on collision with a Volvo and I know what Volvo headlights talk about look like i might throw in some details in there about volvo headlights doesn't mean it ever happened it just right. means i happen to know what volvo headlights look like because the details sell the story like details sell the story if right. you said i got in a car accident like great but if you're like and, i was driving down the road and these headlights look like two wolf eyes coming at me and next thing i know is crash and like yeah it's like that story is a little better it's like right exactly um 
Yeah. So the description of the tomb, cool story, doesn't mean anything. Uh, point 11, uh, the day of preparation. Number 11. I don't have enough fingers for this. Um, the day of the burial was probably the day of preparation. So he says that all of the gospels say that the burial was on the day of preparation. Probably. <laughs> right. He literally says the word probably in his evidence. And then just keeps going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So this doesn't even really deserve a refutation, but John has a different day of preparation than both than the synoptics. Yeah. He literally shifts the entire timeline. He to, probably for does theological, that for theological reasons, but for theological reasons, uh, because <clears throat> if you shift the timeline a few days, it makes it so that Jesus, who John con considers the lamb of God is killed at the same time as the lambs. Yeah. So it's a nice little illusion. Okay, cool. Uh, so, but they're a different day. It's low quality. It's, so, yeah. <clears throat> throughout the, this entire video, Mike talks about how, you know, how many pieces of evidence do you ridiculous? He doesn't say these words, but how many how many pieces of evidence do you crazy atheists need? You know, I've I've got fourteen or fifteen or twenty lines of evidence, lines of evidence. But it's not about the number of evidences you have. It's about the quality of those evidence and how well they work together. Right. And he is providing some low quality evidence and you just like machine gunning it out. Like just say, Boo -doo 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 -doo. right. So the fact that Matthew, Mark and Luke have one day and John has another day. Let's not talk about that though. Matthew, Mark yeah. and Luke have one day. Okay. That means they all received the same story and they agreed that Jesus was buried. Um, on the day of Passover and rose again three days later. That's all that means. Like it's not, he also mentioned something in there about how Joseph of Arimathea could have gone shopping and gotten the stuff he needed. <laughs> Great, <laughs> At man. first, on my first listen, I thought that was the whole point. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Walmart was open on day on the day of preparation. But anyways, that's enough said on that. It, it's yeah. not very strong. Uh, point 12. All right, there's more. Number 12. Women observing the burial has marks of historicity, specifically women observing the burial. Uh, women saw the burial. This is basically the same as point six um, that women, he kind of talks women were trusting. Um, so, but this makes it more historical that they would say that the women saw the burial. Um, and it's also da 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 because it's just for the Bible told me so. He, the Bible said that women saw the burial. You know? Yeah, and let's say let's say the women did see the burial, and we're gonna take that as a hundred percent fact. That says nothing about a tomb being empty. Right. Yeah. The only thing that could possibly show is that he was buried in a tomb. Yeah. Great. How did? <laughs> It's like, I don't get how that is evidence that the tomb is empty. Like, this is supposed to be your best evidence that the tomb is empty. And you, I mean, I guess it could be evidence that there was a tomb. And since it was Roman practice, not to bury people who were crucified in tombs, which we're about to get into. Yeah. Um, maybe that. But he does. So he, he gets through his 12 points or 11 points, however many it is. I think it's 11 if you counted them up. And then he says, 
uh, he's going to go into one rebuttal. He's going to answer one argument against his his list. And the argument he picks is one we actually talked about in the last podcast. Um, okay, one argument against the empty tomb, and here it is. And this is this is what um, actually Paulo Gia, the guy that I debated on the on the evidence for the resurrection, he did bring up this after the debate. I was hoping he'd bring it up in the debate because it was going to be an ambush moment for me. Darn. Um, Roman practices of crucifixion would not allow people to be taken off the cross the day they were crucified. Generally speaking, this is true stories. This is true history here. Romans would leave you on the cross as a display to everyone, everyone around that you don't mess with Rome. They would not allow you to take the body off. They wouldn't allow you to have an honorable burial. None of that. That didn't happen in Rome. This was like not what Romans did. And we know that as we read about from Josephus about typical practices for Roman crucifixion. And so here's what they do. Uh, the skeptic will say, hey, this one fact of history that Romans generally did not allow you to remove bodies from the cross, it overrules all this stuff. And it shows us, even though we have, you know, 12 lines of evidence that point towards the historicity of the empty tomb, it overrules all of those lines of evidence because we have a general practice of Rome. But there's a problem here with arguing from general to specific, right? Like, it's generally true that, you know, say, um, Hispanic men are five foot eight or something like, I don't know what their height is on average, but let's say it's generally true. They're five foot eight. And therefore a guy comes to me, he goes, Hey, I'm Hispanic. And he says, and I'm six foot two. I don't say you're not six foot two because Hispanic men are generally five foot. Like you, you don't argue from the general to the specific. Uh, Mike Winger acknowledges that it was typical Roman practice not to bury crucified criminals, mm -hmm. that, that they would be left out um, to be eaten and decay and whatever. But then he goes on to say that Josephus and uh, his writings on the Jewish wars. Three seventeen, to be specific. Yeah. Talks about that there was exceptions made for Jews and that that shows that it could have been they would have made an exception for Jesus. Right. So it is true that the Romans in some some contexts made exceptions for Jews. Mm -hmm. For instance, in conquered peoples, the Romans expected uh, payments of both tribute, taxes, and also people for the Roman army. And the Jews were exempted from the people requirement. They didn't have to give soldiers. Um, this was because of some Jewish support in Roman politics earlier on. Also, a soldier that refuses to work one day out of the week is not going to be the greatest soldier anyway so it, it is true as far as it goes that there were some exceptions given to jews <clears throat> however the uh jared looked up the verse we'd already read it before but for the for this podcast he looked it up uh you want to tell us about what's going on in jewish war 317 yeah so basically josephus is trying to placate to the romans at the same time showing that Jews were pious people. And so um, this this war that was happening. This, this is during the Jewish war, which is uh, the war where the Jews revolted against yeah. the, the Romans. Around, the, around war that Joseph, the, the war that Josephus himself took part in. Right. And so he goes on to say that he has like one little quote within this thing saying that Jews preferred to bury their dead um but uh, 
I think the quote he gives is, nay, they proceeded to that degree of impiety that they usually took down those who were crucified and buried uh, them before the going down of the sun. Yes. Um, there's a couple of things with this, this passage in there that we need to understand is like, Josephus is saying that this is what they wanted to do. This is what they preferred to do, but there's nothing to indicate that this is what actually Romans let them do. And you also also have to remember that Josephus was writing for the Romans. And so he's not going to put anything in there that makes the Romans look bad because he's in, they're fucking Romans. You know, they're, that's not a good idea to piss your boss off, you know, the Romans literally wanted to learn about Christians. Pliny the Younger, he was like, man, I've never heard of these Christians before. I wonder what they're about. Captured one and then tortured them because that's the obvious step is to yeah. torture someone to get like, <laughs> yeah. that's Romans. So, but, but what we've, especially, so last podcast, we really talked about this. The common practices were not to allow Jews to bury crucifixion victims we're not not to allow people in general yeah people in general and especially um enemies of the state and jesus was an enemy of the state and so this passage in josephus that he's talking about is is kind of taken out of context because it applies to a very specific situation at a very different time than when jesus was crucified and it doesn't it just doesn't go together. Um, it's talking about Jewish preferences during a Jewish revolt when the Jews were in charge of Jerusalem. Yes. During the time of Jesus, the Jews were not in revolt and the Jews were not in charge of Jerusalem. It was Jewish preferences can be whatever they want. The Jews didn't crucify Jesus, no matter how much later Christians tried to say they did. Yeah. The person who crucified Jesus was Pontius Pilate, who, as we said last time, was a brutal dictator who didn't care at all about Jewish preferences. In fact, went out of his way to offend Jewish uh, <clears throat> practices at every opportunity. So this this whole thing with Josephus is, I think it's, I don't want to say it's dishonest, Um but I think what it does is if, if you're a Christian and you're trying to say, well, yeah, of course they would have let him bury him because he has to be buried in the tomb, right? You're going to say, oh, but Josephus talks about they've made exceptions. And they're going to be like, yes, that makes sense. I'm going to use that to support my already belief that Jesus was buried in a tomb. And so – but when you look at it in context, it doesn't fit with the crucifixion story of Jesus. It, I don't think that the single – so really, we've gone through all this this entire list. Um, we do have some multiply attested accounts, but they're multiply attested by Christians, and there's two multiply attested accounts. There's no other people talking about it. Um, there's no evidence that anybody could have gone to the tomb or even knew where it was. There's no reason to think that Joseph Arimathea, even if he was a historical person, could have been questioned or would have been likely to be questioned. Um, so then you get to this point of an exception being made. I don't think that this one small piece of Josephus's writings about a different time and place and context are enough to upend all of the contrary evidence. Yeah, it doesn't. That's not to say it's not possible. It's possible 
that an exception was made for Jesus because exceptions were made sometimes, but it would have been just that an exception. Right. If it would, if you were just didn't know anything and you were laying down money, you would, you should bet on the standard practice. And so we've kind of gone through all his points. We've talked about this a little bit, but none of these are evidences for an empty tomb, right? Evidence for an empty tomb would be Josephus or like uh, somebody, let's say um, Pontius Pilate writing a letter to somebody back in Rome saying, Hey, I crucified this Jesus dude because he was starting an uprising. And then we let these, the Jews bury him. And then three days later, this fucking tomb's empty. Yeah. We <laughs> made an exception for these assholes. Against my better judgment, I let them bury that jerk. And then they don't even, then, then they steal the body and they say he rose from the dead. Can you believe these stupid yeah. Jews? That is evidence for an empty tomb. Like if we found that writing from, from Pontius Pilate, I would be convinced. Yeah. That would be enough for me. But the rest of this stuff isn't evidence for an empty tomb. If anything, it's evidence that he was buried at the least. Which nobody was disputing. Yeah. I mean, at some point he was buried, whether his bones were thrown into a common grave or he was given a pauper's tomb or he was given a fancy tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. Either way, none of those things prove that the tomb was empty. Or, right. or I don't think enough to say that it was historical fact. Historically yeah. possible, sure. The only but thing that that these that his his lines of evidence do prove is that Christians believed there was an empty tomb. Yes, definitely. That that by the the time of the Gospels, um, so by the later half of the first century it was the common Christian belief that the tomb was empty. Right. And the whole, and the whole, but so even if we were to take the, the early um, Corinthian creed, right. That doesn't mention a tomb at all. It just mentions that he was buried and that he rose. So we could assume there's a tomb in there, but the whole point that he's trying to make is like the tomb was empty. And the only reason the tomb could be empty is that Jesus rose from the dead. But he hasn't provided any evidence that the tomb was yeah. empty. We talked about um, the way you weight evidence in our podcast on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hear more about why a supernatural explanation is intrinsically less likely than a natural one, you can go check out there. But essentially, we know the natural world exists. No one disputes that. So if you want to add another layer onto reality, you have to have evidence. You have to have really good evidence. And so to come into this discussion, either already believing the supernatural or putting it at 50-50, well, it could be one or the other, is a bias towards the supernatural. That's what a bias looks like. A bias is not an unequal weighting of probabilities, a bias, an unreasonable weighting of probabilities. Right. So I think based on Mike's presentation that there's 
if this is convincing enough to him, it shows, in my opinion, a bias towards the story being true. Right. And the reason that we covered this one was one, because we were asked to, um, but two, because Mike Winger has a pretty big following and a lot of people listen to this, his pod, his, I don't know if he has a podcast to his YouTube show. And he has 123,000 subscribers. Yeah. And so he puts out this video and says evidence and people are just going to go, oh, well, that makes sense. Uh, But if you just do just the minutia of examining these claims, just give a little effort to, to questioning these claims, you'll see that they don't hold water. And that they're they're not evidences for what he's claiming they're evidences for. So there you have it. We have so many lines of evidence. Just just so many, so, so many, you guys, so huge, many huge, huge lines, lines of evidence, evidence. that the, the, the best tomb lines. was empty. There's trust me, I know lines. I've made lines, <laughs> <and> the best <laughs> lines. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So. Bottom line, it's not about the number of evidences you it's not it's not about the size of the boat, it's about the motion of the ocean, baby. Yep. It's about the quality of that evidence. And this evidence is low quality. Um, I wanted to thank again Kendall Painter for recommending this video. It was, uh, it was fun to go through it and just as definitive proof. We're talking about evidence. This is unequivocal evidence that if you recommend something for us to check out, we will do it. It's actually a hundred percent at this point. So, well, fifty percent. Castrinos has recommended something we haven't done that yet. So, fifty so percent. Well, that's still pretty good odds. Yeah, yeah, still pretty good. <laughs> Definitely better than the tomb being empty. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, if anyway, you, yeah. If you ahead. think that we missed something in the in our rebuttal of Mike Winger's video, and we left out some glaring, you know, obvious thing. Let us know where we screwed up because one, we want to know, and two, we want to be as accurate as possible. So. Definitely. Um, be sure to cite your sources. There's nothing more convincing than peer reviewed evidence. Uh, you can throw that on our Facebook page. I monitor that <laughs> religiously. <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you give it a like um, and rate it on whatever platform you used in order to get to it to help other people see it um next month i think we're going to do essential oils that's the plan right yes so something to look forward to uh gonna check to make sure those essential oils will cure coronavirus just like everyone's saying they will and uh yeah make sure you stock up on them now because supplies are running low yeah i i have a good feeling about this one i think i think this is going to be the one that does it anyway guys stay safe stay at home and remember while you're at home you've always got reason to doubt like just just the fact that Mike Winger will assert there's no plausible way there's no other way the the tomb would be empty really guy no way no way (laughs) yeah that's just I don't I don't get people I mean I get I get people like that I mean so like you have this belief that's fundamental to your core right mm. and somebody challenges it 
um, you're going to double down on it. It's just what humans do. And you're going to accept evidence that's crappy evidence because you already won are coming into it with the presupposition that miracles happen. Mm. And so for you, it's more likely that Jesus was raised from the dead by God. than Honestly, because they're coming with that presupposition, if they even put themselves to miracles are 50-50, that to them is a huge push. Yeah. It's like when I talk to my ex-wife and she's like, I'm already giving so much on this. You need to give too. And I'm like, you started not even in the ballpark. You were like in the next fucking town over. We're finally in the re- the reasonable area. You know? <laughs> but I've given so much. Yeah. So. Look, I said originally I wanted all four of your limbs. Now I just want your right arm. Come on. <laughs> Compromise. 